Hello, Swamp Dweller. I have been listening to your stories lately, and it's brought back some memories from about five or six years ago. For some context, I live in a very large and urban Texas city. My neighborhood, however, had a big problem with coyotes. Every night at around 4am, my uncle would get home from work and come across this one large coyote lurking in our front yard. Now, my whole family dismissed this as just a coyote enjoying our garden, but I believe that it could have been something else, and here's why. It began in the summer after I finished 6th grade. As a teenager, I had nothing to do, so I would stay up very late texting friends or playing something. One night, I was doing so when I heard tapping on my window. It was around 1am, and since my window was on the side of the house, there was no way it could have been my uncle. Plus, it was way too early for him to be coming back home. I looked out the window after it happened, but there was nothing there. On the next night, at around the same time, I heard the tapping again. This time, it was followed by whistling. It was like they were trying to whistle that twinkle twinkle little star song, but it was all wrong. It was out of rhythm. Their voice kept breaking. I was frozen because I had never experienced anything like this at this hour. That morning during my breakfast, my uncle told us he saw a coyote lurking around the yard and to be careful whenever we go out. I thought the whistling would come back the next day, but to my astonishment, it did not. I did not tell my family about it because, let's face it, who would believe me if I said somebody was whistling Twinkle Little Star outside of my window? I didn't hear it again until the next summer. At around the same time, an entire year later, the whistling returned. When I first heard it, I thought my mind was playing tricks on me, but it was very clear. Now at this point, my uncle did not work overnight anymore, so he didn't see the coyotes but my neighbors did. And the morning they told us that they saw a coyote in our front yard at night, the following night, the whistling began. I know I should have recorded it, but I always froze whenever I heard it. Skip forward another year. It was now summer, a summer of staying up late that I would hear whistling outside my window once again. So, to battle this, I would try to fall asleep listening to music. One night as I was drifting off, I heard a horrendous scream. Now, I would listen to metal music, but this scream was not in the song. I paused it, and it kept going. It was the loudest, ugliest, most terrifying thing I'd ever heard. It sounded incredibly high-pitched, like an infant, but somehow with developed vocal cords. I didn't sleep much that night, afraid I'd be woken up by the screaming. That morning, I asked around the house if they heard anything, but no one apparently did. I was entirely shocked because it was incredibly loud. Loud enough to go through my closed window. Since it would always happen two nights in a row, I thought it would happen again the next night, but thankfully it didn't. I never heard anything like it again, actually. Fast forward to this year, and I'm regularly listening to Skimwalker stories to help me pass the time at work, and it got me digging into their history. Now, I personally didn't see anything other than coyotes, but the way whistling and shape-shifting seem to be common signs of skimwalkers has me thinking, could this have been something malevolent or just a creep tormenting me at night? No one has seen any coyotes ever since that night that I heard the screaming, though.
which is something else that I've also found very peculiar. Hello Swamp Dweller, my name is Peter. I am 27 years old and I have been listening to your channel for quite some time now. I was listening to your stuff on Spotify and was reminded of an experience I had at the age of 19 years old. It was Halloween of 2013. Huh, the poetry of it. Anyway, I lived in southeast Montana and it was my freshman year of college and we were out due to a pipe burst. Like I said, the poetry of it all. I received a message in my friend's group chat. It was a good friend of mine who, for discretional purposes, I will call L. Myself, A, D, M, and G, who was my girlfriend at the time, were invited to go drive around in his new truck. We met in the junior parking lot of the high school that bordered our neighborhood. We gave a homeless guy enough money to buy an ungodly amount of beer. We talked about numerous things, and among them was the subject of tonight's gathering. We came to the conclusion that being that it was Halloween, in the spirit of the occasion, we had to do something spooky, which in all honesty, would probably end up having us break into a poorly maintained, abandoned building or getting drunk off our asses in a graveyard. There were more than a few suggestions about what we would do, but my less reckless idea was initially driving the abandoned Highway 87 off of Elkshire Drive. After about an hour of preparing for a three-hour ride, we set off around 5.30. We gossiped about neighborhood drama and exchanged relevant family situations and talked about crushes, grades, rumors, and what have you. At one point, I believe we even played Truth or Dare, but that's irrelevant. The first thing that struck me as odd was that the road that led to our destination was dead. Not a soul to be found, in a vehicle or otherwise, seemingly for miles in every direction. Now, bear in mind that we didn't know a damn thing about this road. Aside from that, it was abandoned and poorly maintained. We knew it was abandoned and could be the subject of urban exploration. I pity the poor fools who may have tried their hand at urban exploration in that area before us or after us. We finally got to the exit that was fenced off with roadblocks that led to the highway. They seemed old themselves. Since I coined the idea, I was condemned to get out and move the roadblocks to open the gate. The moment I stepped out, I felt an insatiable feeling of dread and angst, the kind that a soldier would feel knowing that he was marching into his demise into an unseen danger. I felt like there was something ancient held behind this gate. I felt its presence, and though it didn't seem to be immediately near us, I got the strange sense that I knew it was approaching, entering its domain. I know it sounds juvenile, but it's true. I walked backward back to the truck, ensuring I never took my eyes off the road. When I got back to the car, everyone looked at me with blank faces and distress hidden underneath their facade of calmness. L asked me if I was sure I wanted to do this, as I'm sure he figured out I felt something and perhaps even felt it himself. I said yes in a fake, calm, collected tone and we drove on. We drank a ton. The intensity, it, it permeated the air beyond that point. A quick reminder not to drink and drive, or you may cause yourself and others some serious problems and nobody wants that. We were just stupid, quote-unquote daring teens back then, 
but that doesn't justify it at all. Just don't do it. I digress. I don't know where we were going. I think we were just waiting to see some creepy crackhead or ghost car out of the middle of nowhere so that we would have a story to tell. But you have to be careful what you wish for, lest your wishes be granted. And probably you won't want that, even if you think you do. It's hard for me to tell you exactly how long we had been driving for. Being pretty intoxicated made it kind of hard to tell what time it really was, but I do know it was around 10 p.m. The road was set up in such a way that there was a slope separating the two lanes and we were on the lower of the two. Below us, maybe six to eight feet tall, was another slope that just led into miles and miles of dense, unchecked Montana backwoods. I'm not gonna lie. Even while drunk, that forestry below us, especially looking into it, instilled a sense of dread in me. That's when a decently sized rock flew up from the woods at the driver's side window. From the woods abruptly. And let me say that again. From the woods. L abruptly stopped the car and we all instantly sobered up. We looked at each other and we were all pale as sheets. After a long and excruciating silence, M finally said, Guys, please tell me this is the result of drunken hallucinations. But did you guys just see a... I cut him off saying, Rock, come flying out of the woods and hit our car? M started mumbling something that I couldn't make out. But I could tell he was terrified. Maybe it was other urban explorers or some stupid kids playing pranks. It, it is Halloween after all, D said. Her voice was shakier than ever. So, what was our brilliant solution to this spooky dilemma? We drank some more and got soused again. Out in the middle of nowhere, we decided probably hundreds of miles from any notable civilizations. At the same time, there was potentially dangerous individuals or animals feet away from us, only separated by a small, albeit steep slope with no service or internet, and we'd also need some time to recover and get sober outside again. So we got out, sat down, and had some food we had packed. We sat there not saying anything, just drinking despite our contrary solution. The last thing I remember that night was that D and M climbed up the slope to the other side of the road to stretch, and we made fun of the two lovebirds for wanting to do it out in the road. I woke up the following day around 5.47 with a hellish hangover. Next to my girlfriend G, and A and L passed out in the two front seats of the truck. I woke everyone up groggily. We all unlocked the doors to stretch for a moment to catch our bearings. And then, something got my eyes. The tires. They were all slashed. I instantly started panicking. Oh crap, oh crap, oh crap, I said unevenly, trying to think of a way to fix it. Everyone walked over and saw it, and their eyes went wide. I walked over to the rundown railing, looking onto the canopy of forest dream woods, trying to come up with some sort of fact or term to figure out what, what could have caused this, you know? Oh crap, I muttered. I heard an echo mock me from the canopy. I overlooked it and didn't pay it much attention. L's reaction was angry. It was his truck after all, and A had a similar response to me, whereas G was throwing up due to what I figured was a mixture of stress and hangover after effects. I walked over to L and told him this was all his fault. You dumbass, you got us into a world of crap, I yelled. Me? Me? This was your idea from the start. I don't believe that it's my fault that you don't weigh the consequences 
of stuff like this, you moron. We argued and bantered with many profanities in between each before G interrupted us. Guys, guys, all three of us stopped and looked at her. Where are D and M? She exclaimed. She was correct. They weren't with us. We hastily climbed the slope to see at a higher level. They had gone the night before in this direction. There was nothing. There was nobody. I couldn't even tell anyone had been there. We all started yelling their names. We hopped back down to the original level, continuing to call out for them. Then it hit me. I stopped talking and hushed the others. Why was there an echo? It made zero sense. The natural structure of the canopy and wilderness did not correlate with auditory recircling. It seemed to only come from underneath my level like it was following me. I thought about it for a moment. The slash tires, they weren't the shape of a knife or a blade or whatever else, they were shaped like four sharp fingers had sunken into them. D and M had disappeared without a trace and there was an odd and illogical echo from the dense forest of which, mind you, we could not see into. Everything put together. The rock that was thrown at us. The dread we felt when opening the gate. Hell, even the vacancy of the road. Either there was a once-in-a-lifetime perfect alignment of the stars and this was just insanely inopportune, or there was something inexplicable happening. I accepted it was the latter. Something was wrong. Something was hideously flawed. I could see the cogs clicking into place in everyone else's minds. After a long, intense pause, I said, Oh, hell. And the echo repeated it. Only I was paying attention now. It was indeed an echo, but it was wrong. It was all wrong. It was garbled and inhumanly deep and monotone. I said, Oh, hell. To hear it again, Oh, hell. The echo repeated back in a grotesque mimicry of me. I slowly turned back to my friends. They knew it. This was wrong. This was all wrong. Oh, hell. Oh, hell. Oh, hell. I said slowly, backing away from the railing. Oh, hell. Oh, hell. Oh, hell. The creature, as I concluded this was, indeed a beast, mimicked back. This time, it seemed to move, not stopping, but continuing to repeat oh, hell. It was perverse and a demonic tone. It was moving to my right. I looked over to my right and saw something that could have possibly been the end of me if I had not noticed it. The railing about 20 feet to my right had collapsed, leaving an opportunity to fall, or, what I was more worried about, climb up with relative ease. I screamed at the top of my lungs for everyone to run, and we all booked it the opposite way. I swear I could hear it calmly but loudly echo back in its chillingly otherworldly and malicious mannerism. As it repeated me again, it made it up to our level. As it turned out, our bout of terrible luck seemed to have ended, and as luck would have it, as we ran the other way we saw a black beater pickup truck slowly approaching us. About 50 feet away from us, this guy was definitely shady as hell, and under any normal circumstances we would have avoided it at all cost. But this was far from normal circumstance. The other three hopped in the truck's bed and I got in the passenger side, where it was plain to see this guy was a meth head. Let me tell you, I've never been so glad to see a meth head in my entire life, and I never thought I would be either. We got out of there. Eventually, when we got back to the safety of, you know, civilization, we called the police and told them everything, crying hysterically and sobbing. Once we finally got back to our parents, we finally felt safe again. 
Everybody asked us what happened and we kind of refused to tell them. The guilt was too much. Statements were taken, crime scenes were investigated, and reports were filed. No remains of D or M were ever found, although officially they were classified as deceased. I never saw their parents again. I guess the grief overcame them and they never went out after that. But who knows? There is one thing I do know though. I'll never go back to Highway 87. My name is Riley and I am 26 years old and a guy from Milwaukee. I'm about to tell this story and it is entirely true. It took place about three years ago. Here's a bit of background information. It was late summer, probably early September, and a group of my friends and I decided we wanted to go on an urban exploration. We had often done this in some more rundown areas of Milwaukee, usually in the northern side. It was pretty risky because of the area's history of drugs, gang violence, and settlers. However, we were always cautious in these situations and had pretty good luck with never running into crazy people. You could say we were just fascinated by what was inside of the buildings itself, and it gave us a bit of a rush. The night we left, there was a small group of us going, five in total. It was my friends, Jamie, Kevin, Vin, and Ty. We all were suburban white kids except for Vin, who was half Asian, and Ty, who was black. We were all relatively the same age, except Ty, who was 29 and had gone to the same high school in the suburb of Bayside where we had lived. My friend Jamie was the only girl going and happened to be the one who would drive us there because she had a large SUV that could fit us all. She also happened to be Kevin's girlfriend at the time. We drive to North Milwaukee, past some terrible neighborhoods and many rundown buildings. The location we were going to was an old elementary school that had shut down back in the late 90s. We had learned about it through an urban explorer group on Facebook and managed to get in contact with a guy who had been there twice. He told me the building was quite large and had three floors and a basement floor that was destroyed due to flooding and exposure. He said it still had a stage down there where the little kids would perform in plays and musicals. I remember him telling me that he found some old costumes the kids used to perform in, but he also warned me that there was a lot of black mold and asbestos. Nonetheless, we parked in a large parking lot behind the school that at one point was a busy plaza, but was virtually empty now, and was highly cracked and had weeds growing all across it. We approached the back fence that separated the school playground and the lot. Most of the playground equipment was broken, rusted, or missing. We all walked together to a small opening in the fence by the swing set that would just allow you to get through if you were careful enough. Kevin stood at 6'5 and weighed about 230 pounds, so he knew he couldn't get through. It didn't matter though because we did need one person to wait by the car so it wasn't broken into and to keep an eye out for any cops or any weirdos who came in after us. However, Jamie chickened out due to the weather and wanted to wait with Kevin, so we let her. Ty, Vin, and I got through the fence and made our way across the playground towards the school's back doors. Along the way, I noticed a no trespassing sign a few feet away from the fence, but quickly pushed it out of my mind. There was a chain on the double doors that kept people from entering the school, but it looked like someone had cut it a long time ago, and I kicked it off to the side, where it laid coiled up and rusted. Now, I'm going to talk about the weather that night because it adds a lot to the story. 
It was in the high 80s, but it felt much higher due to the humidity. In the distance, I remember there were large storm clouds, so I knew we had to hurry with the exploration. Vin had brought a camera with him and Ty was recording with his cell phone and had a flashlight app open. We never ended up not needing the flashlight because obviously it was dark, but there was a little bit of light trickling in so we could see just enough from the broken ceiling and broken windows. As we entered, the door opened with almost no noise, which was strange, but the floor was covered with pieces of damaged roof, paint chips, trash, and dust. The air smelled very wet and musty. The temperature inside felt much hotter and more humid, but we just wiped our foreheads and held our water bottles in our hands. We looked around the floor, which was the ground floor, for about 15 minutes before we decided to move to the second floor. Ty suggested the basement, but the Facebook guy's description of the staircase condition changed all of our minds. Vin led the way, followed by Ty and me at the rear. The stairs were covered in debris, so our steps made deafening crunches up the staircase. Keep this in mind. We had gone on these explorations many times and have never run into anyone except a very nice homeless woman and her dog many years ago who told us to stay away from heroin. You could say we were overconfident and had our guard down. We reached the second floor, which had more classrooms than the bottom floor. Most of the rooms were trashed entirely due to the weather or vandals coming in. The desk lay all over the bed, either broken or knocked over. Most of the windows were boarded up or broken, and graffiti covered most of every inch of the building that we had seen. However, some rooms were spared and looked as if students who once sat in them had just vanished into thin air while nature slowly took over the building. Many of the desks still had supplies in them, and the coat hooks still had coats on them. The chalkboard still had things written on it. Ty even found a desk plate with the teacher's name on it that read, Mrs. Johnson. After we wiped away the dust, it eventually became clear that people just kind of abandoned this place. I found a folder on one of the desks that belonged to a kid named Kiana. I gathered that she was a girl in fourth grade and even saw a date on her old assignments that indicated it was from February of 1999. Many of the rooms in better shape had things like this so we eventually got bored and decided it was time to move on. As we approached the staircase to the third floor I had a strange feeling in the pit of my stomach. You know, the kind of feeling you get when you think someone is about to jump out and scare you at any minute. I told Ty and Vin about it and Ty told me not to be a wimp and keep on moving because he was starting to hear thunder in the distance. I noticed that it was starting to get more relaxed in the building, and it was much easier to breathe as we came up to the third floor. It was here where we had run into a strange and frightening situation. I noticed that the school's third floor was different from the other floors. The floor had much more trash on it. The trash appeared to be pretty recent though, Many old pieces of furniture were put in the back part of the first hallway. Then, Ty said something that gave me a good cold chill up my spine. I couldn't tell you why. He noticed that the floor was not nearly as dusty and had fresher footprints than any we had seen earlier. We walked for a few more minutes and I could tell that we were very nervous about running into somebody. Just before we reached a hallway with many classrooms, I decided to text Kevin to see if there was any strange activity outside. He replied within 10 seconds and said that it looked normal, but it could rain at any second. I told him to stay focused and message me if anything odd happened. 
We looked through many of the old rooms and found nothing but trash, old furniture, and rubble. One of the rooms Vin had walked into had half of its floor caved in. He was lucky that he saw it when he did. A few minutes went by and Ty said, Dude, check this out. Vin and I walked over to him and saw a bag full of old used syringes. The needles looked very old and the plastic Ziploc bag was torn and tattered. I told him to drop the bag before he got hepatitis or AIDS. We chuckled and continued to walk down the hall toward the furniture pile. We noticed that behind this pile was a staircase wholly filled with old shelves, chairs, and tables. To our right was a large room that was relatively clear but had mattresses scattered about. There were a lot of cigarette butts lying on the floor and an old rusted oil drum was in the middle of the room. Vin said that the space used to be a library because of a small plaque he had seen above the doorway. It made sense to see why there were so many shelves piled up right outside the door. As we got closer to the far end of the room, we examined the mattresses. There were about five of them, and they were all filthy and torn up. Some had disgusting-looking stains on them and horrible body odor smells to them. Vin noticed a small stack of pornographic magazines by the bed on the farthest side of the room. We all got a good chuckle out of it. The room had two large windows parallel to each other, but they were boarded up and allowed almost no light into the room. As we got to the back of the room, we heard the sound of music being played. All of us froze in unison as the door swung open. There was a man at the entrance of the door. His face told us that he was not happy we were there. He was of average height and had a shaved head and short scruffy beard. He wore a faded brown shirt and some old white basketball shorts. His shoes were white at some point, but now they were stained brown. He was a white man, but his whole body was covered in a thicker layer of dirt. I'll never forget his eyes. They were very pale blue and looked like the eyes of a wolf. However, I noticed the man behind him, who gave me chills at the same time. This man never once stood up and sat on a lawn chair with his left shoulder pointing towards us. He turned his head and looked at us. The man had bright pink hair, tied in a ponytail, and appeared to have no teeth at all. He looked very skinny, and his skin looked tight and pale. His eyeballs bulged slightly and gave him even more of a frightening appearance. He wore a white t-shirt and black shorts. This man never said a word to us. The man at the door spoke in a very rough and direct voice. He asked us what we were doing in the building, and if we were cops. Ty answered him that we were filming a documentary of the old historical buildings in the area and we had no intentions of bothering anyone. The man appeared to relax more and asked us how long we wanted to stay. I jumped in and told him that we were almost done and that we were about to head out before the weather got bad. The man lit a cigarette and asked us if we wanted one, but we all declined. He then offered to give us a tour of the building, but we quickly said no. The man's demeanor changed again as a dark and angry look fell on his face almost as if we offended him by refusing the tour. He eventually chuckled and said okay. He introduced himself as Walter and said the pink-haired man was Ronnie. To our surprise, the man cupped his hands as he hollered out quite loudly for someone named Marty. There was no reply, and the bald man said he must have gone to somewhere else. As we talked for a few more minutes, I took out my cell phone and saw that Kevin sent me several messages. The message said that a man had walked into the building about a minute ago and that we needed to get the hell out of there as soon as possible. The man asked us how many of us there were altogether. I lied and said there were seven of us, because at this point I was feeling very, very uncomfortable. 
There was just something off about this guy. I was ready to crap myself. The feeling in my stomach was coming back. Something told me that they were very dangerous. Vin and Ty felt the same way and had edgy looks. The radio continued to play, but Walter ordered Marty to turn off the damn radio and that it was giving him a migraine. As he did, two things entered my head. He said the pink-haired guy was Ronnie, not Marty, and that as Ronnie or Marty or whoever the heck reached for the radio, I noticed a bungee cord wrapped around his arm and a syringe in it. I don't think Walter saw any of the things I was picking up on, but another man entered the room before anything could happen. This guy was by far the weirdest and most unsettling of the group. He was pretty short and had medium-length, Bieber-style dark hair. His clothes looked so much newer but by far too big for him. He had a blue Milwaukee Brewers t-shirt tucked into his oversized red sweatpants. His face looked sharp and leathery, but he appeared to have a skin condition. His eyes were a beady black color and wide open. Parts of his face were very bright pink and had many bumps on the lower corner of his bottom lip. He spoke in a more high-pitched, rural accent. He spoke in a high-pitched, more rural accent. The other two men remained where they had been. Walter is in the doorway, and Marty and Ronnie in their chairs. The new man said his name was George and that he was very interested in Vin's camera. He asked what kind it was, where Vin got it, how much it cost, and why he had it. Vin went on to explain that his hobby was filming videos and that he would often photograph at weddings and other events. This was all true and the man immediately perked up and smiled. The kind of smile that gives you an uneasy feeling in your gut. The best way to describe it would be how the Grinch smiled in the old animated movie. As creepy as this was, this is when things really started to get bad. He asked Vin if he ever recorded any little girl's beauty patterns or stuff like that. Vin told him no and the man genuinely looked disappointed. He went on to say some more creepy stuff about how hot the girls were on those pageants and how he would die to be alone with one of them. Our faces told the story of how we felt about hearing this, but the man seemed oblivious. He asked us all if we had any kids of our own. Ty slipped up and told him that he had two twin girls who were two years old. The man giggled in a very creepy and cringy way. He then asked Ty if he had ever left the girls alone by themselves or if he had a babysitter. Ty told him that he and his fiance watched the kids most of the time and would occasionally have his aunt babysit them if they could not. This guy continued to ask creepy questions, like if there were any pictures of the girls. For whatever reason, Ty showed him a few on his phone, and the man asked an odd question. He wondered if he would be allowed to date this guy's daughter. And I'm sure Ty wanted to drop this creep by this point, but he also knew that the other two were behind us, so we didn't know if they had guns or knives or what. Instead, he just said that he would have to get to know him more. The man giggled again and said that he would get to know him when he babysat them. The tone of his voice still sends chills down my spine. It was told in such a slow, seductive way that it just left that there was no doubt that this guy was indeed a creep. I saw Ty's brow drop when he was getting pretty upset at this point. I took my phone out and texted Kevin to honk his horn many times. The creepy weirdo stepped toward me and asked me who I was messaging as I did this. He was close enough for me to smell his bourbon breath. I leaned back slightly and told him that we needed to leave soon before bad weather. Walter spoke again and said that we might as well stay since the storm was beginning at any moment, 
and he didn't want us to get wet. Vin explained that we had two friends waiting for us outside. Just as he said that, we could hear a car horn blaring. Both the creep and the bald man showed no reaction to what happened and insisted we stay and invite our friends in. We all stood there and explained that we have to leave, and eventually they agreed. Nonetheless, George insisted he walk us out, and so we walked and got to the ground floor. As we crossed the floor, we could hear his creepy m muttering and... I don't even know. Every so often, he would giggle to himself. We stepped outside. The weather was much more relaxed. The air smelled of ozone, and there was a static feeling in the air as tiny droplets of rain hit my face. George walked us over to the area of the fence we had entered. Ty slipped out first, followed quickly by Vin. They both tumbled down the steep hill and waited for me to go. As I tried to get through the fence, George pushed it against my chest. I was on edge, but still caught me off guard. I gasped and leaned in close. The smell of bourbon made my head slightly turn. I'll never forget what he said to me in a rapid burst. I know you know what I am. It doesn't matter, because I like it. You're lucky that that fine girl in that car was with that fat man or I would have, oh, I would have done whatever I wanted to her. He said whatever. He said it much slower, seductively, and emphasized like he had, like he had dreamt about this. He licked his lips slowly at the end of the sentence. His beady eyes widened, and he let go of the fence. I quickly slipped through and tumbled down to the concrete. I was wondering, but I looked up to the creepy psycho. Ty, Vin, Kevin, and Jamie were all there to help me. They all looked at me and looked at this man in shock. Ty hurled an insult at him. George slowly rose up and looked at Ty through the fence. He put his tongue on the chain link border and made a licking motion. He winked, giggled, flashed his grinch smile, and said his last words to us, for your girls, and gave a clear point to Ty. It took everything we had to keep Ty from going after him, but eventually, we lost sight of George, and Ty calmed down. We sat in the car for a while as the adrenaline rush dumped and left us feeling exhausted. We told Kevin and Jamie everything we had seen, heard, and felt. In the car, we decided to make this our last urban exploration ever. We all agreed unanimously that this was too close of a call. As I sat in the car, I kept thinking about each of the men we had seen. Who exactly were they? They were addicts of some kind, sure, but something seemed off about them. The pink-haired man said nothing and was like a ghost. The bald man said little, but his wolf eyes spoke so much, and the creepy man couldn't stop talking. I would later try to find these men on a jail mugshot website. I could never find them until Vin sent me a link to a sex offender registry website a few weeks ago. My heart nearly stopped. Pictured was the guy who said his name was George. He looked much younger and his hair was shorter, but it was undeniably him. He even had the same creepy smile in the photo. However, his real name was Charles Earl Daly. He was a wanted sex offender from Arkansas who was considered a very high-risk offender and possibly armed. His crimes included many assaults on minors under 12 years old and many other things across that uh, type of thing, if you know what I mean. I knew how lucky I was to survive an encounter with this guy, and if I only knew who he was at the moment, I probably would have tried to end him. It still sends a shiver down my spine to think that we were in danger. Hospital Hauntings by Sunflower480 
I'm a night shift CNA, a certified nursing assistant at a hospital. I have had some strange experiences in some of the rooms, but several in one room in particular. The room that has the most energy is 512. In room 512, I have had a few patients tell me that they see a shadow in the shape of a person in the corner of the room, most often during full moons. Unfortunately, I can't get pictures to show you guys due to HIPAA, patient privacy laws here in America. There have been other odd experiences in that room though. The paper towel dispenser, it will randomly go off even when no one is near it. The clock's minute hand on the wall will move backward and quickly catch back up to the current time, all while making a strange clicking noise. Then, during my shift last night, the room was significantly colder than it typically gets, and the nurse who doesn't work usually on that floor felt a sense of dread in that room. I feel it too, but I think I may be a biased source. Am I just being paranoid? Or is something actually happening in that room? I'd love to know the opinions of the swamp. A Haunted Hospital by T. Smitty Scent So I worked at Warren General Hospital in Warren, Pennsylvania, about 90 minutes east of Erie, Pennsylvania. I worked the night shift and I am a traveling physician, so this was one of the hospitals I traveled to. One night, my floor was slow, so I went to the CCU to help the critical care doctor who was swamped. Well, that night my patient rang her call bell at 3 o'clock in the morning. She asked me, what does she want? I said, what do you mean? She said, the nurse. She keeps coming in here and standing there in the corner. She pointed at the corner behind the door. So I was like, um, who, Ashley? The nurse I was working with and pointed to her, sitting at the nurse's station on the computer. She said, no, no, the other one. Well, there was no other nurse. It was just the two of us. Just FYI, the patient was a woman in her 50s who didn't have a history of mental illness and was not taking any meds that would have made her hallucinate in any way. So, I tried my best to kind of just laugh it off. And I was like, it's just us. And she looked at me, very creeped out and stared. But she said, okay, if she does it again, I'm going to yell for you. And I told her I'll come right in. Her room was about eight feet in front of the nurse station. So about a half hour goes by and she yells, see, there, there she is. I got up and started walking. I heard the bathroom shut. It had been cracked open to give her dark little room a little nightlight. I walked in and said, See, you're dreaming. There is no one else here. She says, No, she went in the bathroom. So I open the door. The lights are still on and there's no one in there. Looking confused, I say, Um, well, what does she look like? Because I thought someone might be messing around. It's too dark to tell. I can tell it's a woman, but she's so dark and I can't make her face out. So when she says that, I get a little weirded out. But the night ends and I forget all about it. Three months pass and I pulled back to the same unit. I have the same room as before. This time a man in his early 60s was the patient. Nice guy, seemed alert and oriented, very polite. The night is going good. It's roughly about 3am and his call light goes off, which means he needs something. So I walk in and he says to me, You're my nurse, right? I shake my head and he says, Well, why does that lady keep coming in and standing in the corner? What is she doing? 
I almost crapped myself instantly. This was three months later, same room, same thing. I said to him, Honestly, I, I think it's a ghost, sir. And he laughed. And I said, You're not the first one to say that. I started telling everybody about it, and then I found out the entire second floor has a nurse who's been seen every so often. In the 1990s, a nurse who worked up here committed suicide. Apparently shot herself in the second floor bathroom. My Experiences as a Security Supervisor by Ari98 I work night shift at the hospital my mom also works at. After about a year, I am ready to come out about how I feel in this hospital. I have asked my coworkers if they have ever felt these things either, so I do think some of them have similar stories which I may share in the future. I am 25 years old and I am female. I have been working at this hospital for about a year now. I was promoted in March due to the previous night shift supervisor wanting a better job for himself. Hence, I decided with what I already knew about the hospital, I would step up for my co-workers to be their supervisor. I trust myself and only myself with this hospital. This hospital is horrifying. The amount of things I've heard, what I've seen, and what it's capable of is insane. We have three significant buildings, and I'll label them with three numbers, one, two, and three. The first building, our first significant one, has a morgue on the ground floor, and we use it because we have to, it's part of our job. Thankfully, that part of our job has changed drastically, so we do not need to be with the mortician during a pickup. Initially, we would have to be in the morgue with the mortician to see if any items were left on the deceased. We do not need to do that anymore. And instead, what we can now do is something that makes us even more uncomfortable. We have to stay in the hallway outside the morgue until everything's ready. We have to let our SOC operator know first. However, after the deceased has been covered and the mortician is ready, we return to the morgue to lock the door. To get to the deceased, they need to have the cold room door in the morgue unlocked, and after they find the dead, we lock the door again. We must ensure it is closed every single time, which is our priority. And that's basically the first building. Our next building is connected to the first building and was built in 2018, so it's relatively new. I will be brief with this because we have issues at our site right now, but this building is also incredibly haunted. We have CCU and ICU on two different floors because my mom works here. I know various nerfing staff, transporters, CNAs, etc. We patrol this building to ensure no one is lost and our clients feel safe. However, due to CCU and ICU, the hallway lights flicker. One time, a nurse had me investigate an odd sound they were hearing, and when I heard it, it was laughter. It sounded like a child. So I reported it, and my co-supervisor told me to leave the area and try not to think about the incident. I investigated to make a general activity log and say to our bosses that everything was fine, but I felt absolutely horrified while I was there. This building is across the street, this next one anyway. I do not go here at all and I refuse to go to the third building. In this building I have had my own experiences of being dragged into rooms, choked, and kicked a couple of times by an unseen force. We have tours and checkpoints that we scan, and whenever we do interior patrols, we feel like someone is watching us non-stop, and it always feels like somebody's following you. I have asked my weekend officers about this building and they say the same thing as me. They see shadows and get dragged into rooms. Once a badge reader showed green with no one scanning their badge and the building was locked up. 
When I was doing a regular shift, I saw a figure in white walking up the stairs and my ex-boyfriend heard someone walking up the steps and I definitely saw someone. Then a couple of weeks later, he saw something that terrified him and I only listened to the sounds that scared him. My ex-boyfriend was a very competent guard. He was very experienced and nothing seemingly scared him. But that night, whatever we had to follow around that building scared him to his core. We thought it was just a human because it walked into one of the three auditoriums we have. And when we followed it, it was absolutely gone. Just absolutely disappeared. There was nothing. The next thing we heard could be scratching. Nails dragging across the walls. These walls were tall and that's all we could hear. All through the auditorium, it was like pins and needles being pulled deeply into your ears. We both decided this was enough and we went outside. We eventually went, smoked, calmed down a bit, but I was still very scared and shaking. If anybody has questions, feel free to ask. I still work at this site and I return to work tomorrow at 11pm. I need to find out what is going on here. I need to figure it out so I don't go crazy. I've seen a couple of veteran security officers who have worked this site in the past, and they all seem to have some pretty crazy stories as well. Haunted College Hospice by Anonymous So this happened about a year ago. Some background, I'm a student veterinary nurse, a 21-year-old female. In my placement, I am required to do on-call, so I stay above the vets in a small flat. My first night on-call, and I happen to be the only person staying in that flat, and we have four or so inpatients, cats and dogs. When someone rings the vets at night, it transfers to our out-of-hours service, which will then transfer any emergencies to our on-vet call. So. It's about midnight and I'm just falling asleep when I hear a loud male shouting outside the window. It sounded like, I'm going to break in, or something like that. The practice is not a rough area, but it is a little busy, so I immediately sat up knowing something was wrong. I start to hear banging on the front glass doors and I panic. Sometimes when there are emergencies, people won't ring and just drive down and hope someone will be there. I consider going down, but it sounds as if they're trying to break the windows on the doors. Then, I hear nothing for a couple of minutes, and then a smash in the window below my room. The window happens to be the pharmacy. We keep drugs in there, but not dangerous drugs as they are locked away. At this point, I'm pretty terrified. I call the owner of the vets and the police. The owner says she is on her way, and has the 008 service called her to say someone rang and was threatening to break in. So, I have no idea if this guy is in the practice or what. I instantly run downstairs in my PJ to the kennels on the other side of the building as I can hear the dogs barking, and I know most of them are getting worked up with the noise. After I'm sure they are okay, I scout the rest of the practice out apart from the pharmacy room and run back upstairs. I can see out my window onto the street below and just can make out the guy's figure. He is carrying a torch and has his hood up. He runs off, and I'm not sure if he has seen me at the window or anything else. But soon, after the police and the owners arrive, I feel a little bit better. They look around, and the window broken is a small window. The whole smash isn't big enough for anyone to fit through, so the police and owners decide it's fine to leave and go back home. I'm pretty bloody shaken up at this point, and am reassured he probably was just some drunk and won't come back. 
I don't sleep and about four in the morning I hear someone walking on the glass below my window and the sound of someone cracking the glass off the window. I get up and check out the window and he's back. Now I'm annoyed because I'm so tired after working in the day and can't even sleep thanks to this guy. I stand at the window with my light on making it obvious that I'm there and he carries on. So I ring the owner and police again. This time they come and catch him and he pretends he is just out for a walk at night. I shout out the window that he rang the 008 service and they ring the number he used to ring and to no one's surprise, it belongs to his phone. I had to do a police statement in my PJs in the staff room by the time we were finished and it was 6 in the morning. I could have gone to sleep but I just drove home because there was no way I was staying on my own again. Two days later, I was put back on call and was in the flat on my own again with the window boarded up. Apparently the guy had been going around the town and following girls home and breaking into cars so they weren't surprised. He wanted to save the animals and stop the noise. The only noise was our drip monitors and it's not audible from the outside. The dogs only started barking when he tried to break in. Obviously this creep was after some ketamine and luckily the police took him in and they replaced our window. Just over a year ago, my father had a heart attack. The cardiac part of the hospital goes in one way and out another, so it's pretty hard to find the right door when you're new to visiting that ward. The first time he was admitted, my mother and I found it easy to get there. There is normally a lot of staff around to help. However, the second or third time he had gone onto the ward, they got taken straight in there because of chest pains and they had to go to the emergency department. It was at least a busy time in the hospital as we were dropping off his medication rather than visiting. Before I really start, I just want to give a clear picture of the hospital. It has three entrances, two at the front and one in the back, with various car parks based around these doors. The hospital is made up of an old and new building which are connected by a bridge. The cardiac ward is in the old part of the hospital. However, this door has limited parking. We go into the back door rather than the one which goes straight up to the cardiac ward as the parking around there is full, taking us into a new building. This means that not only do we need to make our way to the top of the hospital but also to the other side. So we aren't sure where we're going and ask a nurse who gives us a muddled version of the directions to the cardiac ward. We follow them for a while and end up completely lost. So we ask another nurse who gives us more directions and we're lost again. We're both the stereotypical idiot females when it comes to following directions. So we try following signs, but we aren't sure where we are and neither of us are familiar with this part of the hospital. Eventually, we end up in an elevator that looks like a service one, as it was sliding the mesh doors rather than solid metal ones. The buttons claim they can get us back to where we were from, so we try it. This puts us at the other end of the corridor that we have been on before. So we take another elevator to put us down on the right floor, which ended up not being the right floor after all. We now have the option of going to floor 0, which my mom informs me is the morgue, as you need a key to get down there, or floor 3, unless you want to go higher. We press to take floor 3 and end up in this empty white hallway with a disused end of a life cancer ward. I'm instantly creeped out. We are in a white hallway with an old ward, beds and equipment are abandoned an old flight of stairs going up to somewhere you can't see and is not signposted. A set of double doors at the end of the hall and an older couple in their 50s wearing reasonably modern old clothes. There was a man looking into the war with his hand in the woman's shoulder. She just stood there, facing the wall. 
My mother looks around and suggests we find someone to ask where we go from here and does not notice this creepy couple standing right in front of us until I point them out. They do not acknowledge us in the same way she acknowledged them. She then goes and walks down the corridor as I'm contemplating what the hell I should do, because I don't want to stay on my own but I don't want to go through the doors. Then, this nurse in a uniform that clearly is not the same as the other ones, opens a door just wide enough to get through. She walks into the corridor, looks right at us and says, you should not be down here with us. I tell my mom to get back in the elevator, but she tries to ask the nurse where we need to go. The nurse replies, the highest button, so we get in and press the one she said. Whilst this is taking us to gods who knows where, I have a bad feeling about what just happened, so I try to make sense of it by asking if the nurse's uniform means she works in a specific area or was a higher ranking or something. My mom used to work at the hospital cleaning, so she has seen most of the uniforms worn. She replies no and that nurse maybe came from another hospital for a training program or to help out. The elevator opens and we get out and walk down another empty corridor. This time we bump into a nurse wearing the usual uniform, walking back towards a different elevator. She stops us from going any further and tells us we are on the floor with operating rooms and we can't stay up here. We tell her that we are lost and get into the elevator with her, which puts us in a completely different part of the hospital where we need to be. Problem solved, apart from that I am convinced we had an encounter with something paranormal. A few months ago, my dad was in the hospital again, and during visiting hours, one of his nurses came to talk to us. We had just been talking about what my parents described as a weird experience, and my dad asked a nurse if she knows where we could have been. She thinks that we are playing a joke on her and tells us that this is all the floors that there are, and the floor that we have talked about she has never heard of. She realizes that we are serious, though. And she says that maybe we bumped into the hospital ghost, an old nurse who has apparently been seen on the children's war when a child is dying. After she leaves, the child makes a full recovery. I have heard of this story before, but a kind spirit who ups others and I can 100% say that whatever we saw was not kind and did not want us around. Of course, I can't be sure that it was really paranormal and not just a lover of the paranormal being biased, but it didn't feel right. They were in old-fashioned clothes, they were see-through and they were very violent towards us. But I had this feeling of complete dread when we stepped out of the elevator. That coupled with the fact that my mom didn't even see the couple. At least not until I pointed them out. The fact that the nurse said the area does not exist and the fact that neither of us can remember the facial features of anyone we saw on that floor, just the clothing and the hair color, tell me that what we saw was not normal or good. I now have an absolute fear of going anywhere on my own in the hospital just in case I see anything else that I'd rather not. I still get the creeps when thinking about it. This story comes from my uncle and my grandfather originally. It has been retold to us so many times as kids growing up that I can repeat it verbatim. So please, understand that they are not the type of people to lie or make up a fictional story to tell. To my knowledge, this is 100% true and I've retold it to the best of my knowledge as accurately as possible. My grandfather was the owner and operator of a tugboat company that ran barges up and down rivers all over Louisiana, the Mississippi River included, and on occasion, they would even be as far north as the Ohio River. My uncles have told me stories of them sweating in Louisiana and then breaking ice on the Mississippi River during their work stint with their boat. 
Later, the company was sold to a giant corporation and my grandfather's small fleet of three tugboats. However, many memories and stories remain from their time operating. These stories are still being carried down from my mother and her siblings, who all worked as a part of the company at some point in their life. For context, sometime around 1975 in Louisiana, my uncle, who was about 20 at the time, and my grandfather had boarded one of their boats one day to get in some extra work. Although the company employed many other employees in addition to my family who worked it, my uncle and grandfather were the only ones on the boat that day as this wasn't typically a scheduled workday. It was something that they could handle on their own. After the day of work, as night fell, they had a dinner prepared in the galley, to which my uncle went and ate. He then returned to the bridge where my grandfather was operating the boat. After a short time, my uncle looked over the ship's side, where he noticed a man. He saw the man with a long scraggly white beard and long hair raking, what appeared to be leftover food into the river. My uncle quickly looked over at my grandfather and said, I thought we were the only ones on the boat tonight. My grandfather responded, We are, son. Why? My uncle then said, Well, who's the man down there? My grandfather quickly got up to go look, and the man was gone. In a rush, they checked the entire boat. Every compartment, every nook and cranny. They were indeed the only ones on that ship. They returned to the bridge, to which my grandfather asked my uncle to describe the man he saw. My uncle told him he had a long white beard, long hair, raking food into the river. My grandfather was taken aback as he quickly realized what it must have been. This was their newest boat, and he had bought it a few years before. It was for a reasonable price. However, the ship did come with a story. Several years before my grandfather purchased it, a man was killed on this boat and fixed it up. He never told anyone else this story, as he thought nothing of it and didn't want them to worry about buying a boat involved in such an accident. As my grandfather's story goes, a man was working on this particular boat on a day when it was about to collide with a barge. In their attempt to stop the two vessels from crashing, a man fell between them and was crushed as they hit. The reason my grandfather was taken aback? The man, my uncle described fit the exact description of the man that was destroyed on the boat just a few years prior. Over the next 10 to 15 years, this boat was in operation for my grandfather's company. It came to be known for being haunted, as this was not the last experience anyone had on that boat, nor the last time the man with the long white beard would be seen. Hello Swamp Dweller, this is a story that occurred to me about a week ago. I won't reveal my name for obvious reasons, but I also fear the government may get involved. This story is quite different from the occasional cryptid or creepy person attempting to abduct you. This is much different from your typical story, because this story takes place in the Gulf of Mexico. It's extraordinary and unbelievable, but it did happen and I felt that I should share it with you all. Without any further ado, let's dive into this story, pun intended. It was a sunny afternoon out on the waters of the Gulf of Mexico, and it was beautiful and peaceful. I was on a small sports fishing boat with four other people. They had been very successful that day catching fish, 
but they were releasing them due to the fishing regulations. At one point, I saw a massive king mackerel, which many people confused with barracudas because of its sheer size and appearance. The king mackerel was a whopping three, maybe four feet long and weighing a hefty 160 pounds. This one was a keeper. About 30 minutes later, things started getting strange. Less and fewer fish were being caught, and if some were seen, they would act very strange. As soon as we got a fish aboard, it would start gnashing its mouth at anyone nearing it and began flopping towards the closest person as if they were trying to kill. That's when the clouds started rolling in out of nowhere. We could see bolts of lightning strike in the distance, and the waves became violent. We immediately began scrambling on the boat to get away from the incoming storm. But as we started, the storm caught up, and we were now just in hopes and prayers. An overwhelming feeling of absolute dread overcame the entirety of us. That's when I saw it. A white object is ejecting out of the rough seas like a rocket. Hey, did y'all see that? I had to shout because of the storm. The others turned in the direction that I was talking about. The thing shot out of the water and over the boat. It was, it was huge, more significant than our fishing boat. It was ghost white and strangely beautiful to witness. It had the body of a shark, the head of a viper fish, and the tail of an eel. It had fins like that of a goldfish. It dropped gracefully into the waves next to our boat sending a massive swell of seawater upwards like a depth charge. As we were going as fast as the ship could go, the creature was trailing behind. Like a snake, it slithered through the water. It then went down. Not just ten seconds later, it exploded out of the water like a missile and crashed into the waves. This went on for maybe ten or fifteen minutes until, as if losing interest in us, it turned back out to the sea. Bizarrely, the storm shortly let up as we got farther away from the beast. Eventually, we reached the coast and discovered, to our horror, the king mackerel was now out of the tank of water we kept for live fish. We reeled back as the fish was violently hissing at us, snapping at us with its jaws. It was slowly using its fins to pull itself to us. This thing's eyes were rolled back as if it were possessed. Oh, F this, one of the guys said. As we'll call him Jack grabbed the cleaver to mercilessly kill the fish that we caught to sell to the market and brought down the cleaver upon the mackerel's head. The head was cleaved off. The body went still, but the head was still moving. The body still moves when you cut off a chicken's head, except the roles are reversed now. This was not very good to see as none of us had ever seen anything like this before. The white eyes of the fish now started bleeding tears, and then... It freaking screamed. It sounded like an attempt at a human scream, and it didn't sound enjoyable at all. It just continued screaming as blood kept trickling out of its eyes. Then the screams turned into gurgles as it was somehow spewing blood from its mouth. About one minute passed until the scream stopped, and the head went slack. The eyes rolled back to normal before they died. I have zero answers as to what the hell happened. Maybe it had something to do with the albino creature out in the gulf. Perhaps it was something paranormal. Perhaps they're completely unrelated. But something is going on in the Gulf of Mexico.
This particular story is possibly the most traumatic week of my life. Sounds dramatic, I know. I'm already questioning whether or not I even want to put this out there. My name is Kira. I had a lot of issues with my parents growing up, but they always seemed to trump my feelings of uncertainty with annual trips to the Caribbean. Being from Canada, I always enjoyed the palm trees and vibrant aquamarine of the sea, but mostly I enjoyed the week-long break from the bullies at my elementary school. I felt lucky. I knew I had an opportunity many kids in my class did not. More than anything, though, I was just happy to have something good in my life. My parents were the type to take me on vacation, give me beers at the age of 10, and tell me about all the crazy stuff they did growing up. However, I was not allowed to have male friends, I was physically abused for the minor mistakes that I made, and my emotional needs were ignored. It's not relevant to the story, so I won't go to much more detail, but I was left with the impression that I constantly needed to impress and suck up to my parents if I wanted their love and attention, especially my dad. I tried so hard for him. I tried to impress him to this day, but I can't help it. My parents took me to the Dominican Republic during March break for this particular vacation. I was seven years old and this was my first trip overseas. We stayed at a resort on the waterfront of a popular tourist spot. We spent most of our days there on the beach. I was a fantastic swimmer and loved the water at the time. You had to drag me out of it practically. Nothing could break my spirit, nothing could scare me, I thought. I always considered my parents to be somewhat responsible. They were so strict I just thought it was because they were trying to protect me and do what was best. Looking back though, I get angry at how wrong I was. On the second day of our trip, my father walked me down to the beach. From what I can remember, we ended up at a boat rental area. They had kayaks and other small boats, what they called kayaks I guess, but these weren't kayaks. They were more like paddle boards. They were primarily flat and you sat on them rather than in them. My dad essentially told me to get the kayak and be safe and don't mess around with the paddleboard. While dragging me out in one of these kayaks and pushing me into the water, a young girl around my age approached me, asking if she could join. I was practically conditioned into subservience, so I allowed it. We rowed around in the shallow waters until she noticed some big waves out on the horizon. She insisted we go out there. I was scared, and I knew it was dangerous and a bad idea. But I've never had anybody convince me of doing something I didn't want to do, really. So, against my better judgment, we rode out there, and slowly but surely we approached waves taller than the two of us combined. We immediately realized our predicament and attempted to turn around, but it was far too late. A ten-foot wave flipped our tiny boat and flung us into the sea. The waves crashed over me repeatedly. All I could do was see the bottom of the ocean for a while. I remember thinking it was beautiful. I couldn't stay though. I had to do something. The waves were still coming at me with my head finally above the water. I couldn't see anything over them, and I felt myself dragged beneath. Finally, I saw the girl. I hated her, and I didn't want to help her. Then I saw the boat. Both were maybe 20 feet away in opposite directions. I swam harder than ever towards the ship. Tears were streaming down my face. I eventually got us back onto the kayak, and our oars were nowhere in sight. We used our arms to paddle us forward, and after some time, what felt like an hour, maybe even more, we were back in the calmer waters, where we found one of our missing oars. 
we used it to get back to shore as quickly as possible. Upon arriving on the beach, we both ran back to our parents. At least I assume that's where she went, as we never saw each other again. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. Even after relaying that and all of what happened to my parents, they didn't seem to even get the hint that I should be supervised. I wasn't a bad kid, but as a seven-year-old in a foreign country, you'd think they'd be more cautious. A couple of days later, I walked down to the beach by myself, where an older gentleman approached me. He had a strange accent and asked me how old I was. I told him, though, I was genuinely creeped out by him. I felt like I had to answer his questions. He was an adult and was therefore in charge. He then asked me if I would hang out with his son, Frederick. I still was nervous, but I reluctantly said yes. I was scared of this man, but at the same time, I wanted another kid to play with as I was lonely. He took me to him, who, to his credit, was real. I hadn't been tricked or lured, and all my worries instantly melted away. Frederick and his father were visiting from Poland, and Frederick and I bonded, talking about our home countries, interests, and absent parents. I then learned that Frederick was 13. This concerned me, though. Not as much as it should have, probably. Being only seven years old, I knew that he was what was considered at my school a big kid. When you're a kid, a six-year difference really is a lot. It feels like they have as much control over you as an adult. But we got along great, so I had no reason to think of him as anything other than a friend. We continued to hang out for several days. We would meet up at a specific spot on the beach, and we would talk and play in the sand. We never really went in the water. We would chat and explore the coast. It was a lot of fun. I liked Frederick. On the third day we met up, we played around in the sand. By this point, I noticed his father was never around. I had only ever seen him the first day when he approached me alone. I didn't think much of it. Frederick suggested we go into the water. As someone who loved the ocean, I was more than happy to oblige. I was honestly waiting for this. I loved the sand, but I wanted to swim. We went in the water talking and laughing, except he kept moving further and further out to sea until I eventually couldn't touch the bottom. He was more than a foot taller than I was, so I assumed he didn't realize I couldn't feel him anymore. But then, his whole demeanor changed. We were facing each other. I was facing the shore, and he was facing the open ocean. He was blocking my path back to the beach, though this wasn't a concern at the time until he started acting weird. Nothing leading up to this point would have led me to believe he was a threat. He asked me about my body and if I had ever seen a guy's private parts. Thinking this was a joke, I said no. He then asked me if my parents knew where I was. I once again stupidly said no. I was getting worried out, and I told him I wanted to go back to the beach. He ignored me, and then he asked, Do you want to see it? Surprisingly, at this point, I actually kind of knew what was going on, and I wasn't being an idiot for once. I tried to swim past him, but he grabbed my arm before I could say anything. He put both hands on top of my head and shoved me underwater. I was kicking and screaming, knowing no one could hear me or save me. I felt so helpless. I felt, I felt like I was leaving my body. I could see his legs, I could see the empty blue, I could see my parents lying on lounge chairs half a mile up the beach, sun tanning, drinking cocktails, not a worry in the world. Anger consumed me. I was a good swimmer. I was in martial arts. I knew I could do better. I deserved a chance at life. I wanted my freedom so severely I kicked and kicked and kicked 
and I kicked Frederick right in the jewels by pure chance. I somehow made it back to shore by grasping for air and swimming like I was in the Olympics. I ran to my parents, and though they questioned why I was out of breath, all I could say was, I never want to see Frederick again, and I didn't. During the last couple of days of the trip, my parents looked out for me. They never even questioned my decision to stop seeing this kid who they'd never even met. I put it out of my mind, too. I'm 24 years old now. I recently brought it up to my mother, telling her the whole story. She cried. I get it. I love my parents. Unfortunately, they didn't start paying attention to me until I no longer needed it. When I was a young teenager, my friend Nathan and I would often take my family's large sea kayak out to cross the nearby river to a small creek around a half a kilometer away and shoot off adjacent to an abandoned golf course. This creek was very slow moving compared to the large Hawkesbury River, and as a result, a lot of rubbish and debris would collect at the mouth of the river before slowly being distributed throughout its length. Nathan and I spent a lot of time at this creek. We even built a small jetty to tie the kayak to using long sticks and baling twine from hay bales that we used to feed the horses with back at home. We used this jetty to moor the kayak while we navigated the mess of prickly pear cacti that guarded the borders of the golf course. The golf course itself was incredibly eerie. No animals, birds, or even insects could be heard or seen on it. Every noise you made echoed back at you from a nearby sandstone cliff face. The closest thing we saw to an animal was the skeleton of a kangaroo that we found around the second time we went there. It was strange as we had only been to the spot around a week prior and there was no corpse. Yet there in the middle of the clearing, it was a complete kangaroo skeleton. Sun bleached and scattered about. We picked up some of the bones and admired them closely, remarking on what part of the skeleton we thought each bone was before tossing them aside. I took the skull back with me in the kayak and placed it on the bookshelf in my room when I got home that afternoon. I often took things back from my outings, Nathan never seemingly did though, but he was always on the lookout for something for me to collect. The next time we went out to the creek, we decided to try our luck at exploring the waterway as far down as possible. We armed ourselves with machetes and small hatchets that we had used when we built the jetty and set off. The journey was made extremely difficult by vines that spanned the creek from bank to bank. Sunken logs and dense river weeds produced paddling nearly impossible. The water was full of garbage too, broken tubes, life jackets, boat propellers, you name it, it made its way there. As we made it through to a relatively rubbish-free area with dark, ominous-looking water, I looked down briefly and saw what I thought was a doll's head just below the water's surface. I stopped paddling to crane my neck over to see it more clearly. It was a doll's head. Around a foot below the surface, as if it was tethered there from the riverbed. It was looking up with a blank expression and light blue eyes. I instantly got a panicked feeling as I gazed at it. Before I could say anything, Nathan exclaimed, Ah, cool, and plunged his hand into the water. He was surprised how deep he had to reach to wrap his fingers around the head, but Nathan was a determined dude. He lifted the head out of the water and grinned at me. Streams of water ran from his closed fist as he triumphantly held it out toward me. I took it reluctantly from him, 
It was a tiny doll's head, around three inches in diameter. The charge was sun damaged, and as a result, it had lost a lot of the paint features. There were no discernible pupils on its eyes, just the blue-colored iris. This gave the thing an alarming look. I shook my head and placed the head on the front of the kayak to look like a figurehead of the old wooden ship. Nathan laughed. Let's call him Bob, he said while grinning. I gave him a deadpan look. I was trying not to laugh. You're so original, I scoffed at him before returning to resume paddling. I stopped immediately when I saw Bob staring straight back at me. I had not placed him like that. I had sit him facing forward. I knew I had because his face creeped me out and I did not want to look at it. Nathan paddled while I rested, so we moved at a good pace. As I was at the front of the boat, I was meant to watch for obstacles and call out if I saw something ahead. However, I was entirely focused on Bob as we struck a submerged tree and came to an abrupt stop. Everything on the kayak jumped forward due to this. Nathan and me, our packed lunches and water bottles. Nothing too major happened. Everything on the kayak had jumped forward, except for the doll's head. I had kept my eye on it the entire time, and it did not even move half an inch. It was like this thing was super glued to the boat. Nathan began teasing me about being blind. I snapped at him to be quiet. He asked what was wrong, and I leaned to the right for him to see the head. I pointed and said, It didn't move, dude. While half chuckling, Nathan moved forward to look at it closer. What do you mean? He asked slowly. I picked up my paddle and took a slow stroke backward in the water and hit the tree again. Lightly. Once again, everything in the kayak jumped forward slightly as we struck the tree except for Bob. He stayed perfectly still. Nathan laughed. That's weird, he said, his voice trailing off. I reached out and turned Bob around on his spot, and he turned quickly. Let's go home, I roared. He was trying to wash the area of the heavy feeling that was seeming to settle down upon us. Nathan agreed, and we turned the kayak around to head home. I watched the head like a hawk. Bob never looked back at me on the whole trip home. When we got home, we packed everything up that we could into our backpacks and lifted the kayak out of the water. The head was stuffed into my pocket. I had not told Nathan about how creeped out I was of this thing for fear that he would give me crap about it or maybe give him possible ammunition to play a dumb prank on me with it. Nathan was and still is my best friend and he would have done that if I told him just as I would have done it to him if the rules had been reversed. I decided to keep my mouth shut about the doll head and hope Nathan would simply forget about it. We trudged over to my neighbor's backyard with the kayak, holding it by the handles at both ends. My pocket started to feel very warm. I stopped listening to Nathan's nonsense and focused more and more on the head's ever-increasing temperature inside my bag. Each time I thought, it can't get any hotter. It somehow would. It was not a burning sensation, more like the feeling of deep heat as it gets left on. I tried my best to ignore it. It was getting dark now, and I wanted to call home. We dropped our kayak off in the garage, put away the machetes and hatchet before making our way upstairs for dinner. I took a detour to my room to dump the head out of my pocket and onto my bed. I left it there while I left to join my friend Nathan and my family for dinner. When Nathan and I finished dinner and entered my bedroom to sleep later that night, the head was absent from the bottom bunk. My room was a mess admittedly, 
but it still should have been in that cleared spot that I put it in. I took a little time to look for it. I tossed the blankets and sheets and climbed over to peer down through the gap between the bed and wall. I could not see it anywhere. I was concerned, but not too concerned. I was somewhat relieved that it was gone. However, I had a gnawing feeling that it was still around somewhere. He was not exactly watching me, but I knew there was a presence around. Nathan seemed to have forgotten about it though. He never brought Bob back up again that night, and he climbed up to the top bunk and promptly fell asleep. I lay down on my bunk on the bottom and pulled the bundle of blankets haphazardly over me. I was falling asleep quickly as well. The next day I was awoken by thumping noises coming from nearby. I got up out of bed to glance out the window into the paddock of our front property to see my stepfather using the hatchet to hack at a tree stump that was much too large for the little axe. My stepfather was a brilliant man, but his grasp of common sense sometimes bordered on the absurd. I yawned, rubbing my eyes and turning around before opening them. I froze in place. On the shelf in front of the kangaroo skull was Bob. His eyes looked at me once again, directly into mine. I turned to look at Nathan, still sleeping on the top bunk, and instantly jumped on the railing to punch him hard in the upper arm. He awoke with a pained cry and looked at me with a scowl. What the hell, man? He demanded, lifting his other arm to place his palm over the spot that I had struck with the punch. Like you don't know, you mofo, I said with a half-assed laugh. I was trying to mask the trembling tone in my voice. Nathan looked incredulously back at me. I stared at him to see if his stoic expression would falter. It always would when he played pranks. It did not, though. I shook my head and strafed across the room, going to the bookshelf so he could see it. I pointed at the top shelf. You didn't put it there? I asked quietly. Nathan sat there to get a better look and shook his head. Nah, man, I would have had him facing outward anyway. You know I would have. I spun my head around so fast that my neck nearly broke. Sure enough, the face was now facing toward the kangaroo skull and not outward like it was before. I started shaking, unable to hold myself up without the railing any longer. I dropped to the floor and stormed over to my bookshelf to pick up Bob and took him into the kitchen. I threw him into the bin and took out the trash and took it out to the fire pit. Ever since then, I've not taken anything from that river. I don't really know what's going on. I don't know if it was a haunted doll or if the river itself has something going on with it. It does feel weird. Like I said, you never hear any animal sounds. It's full of trash and it just seems like wasteland. I'd love to know your opinions in the chat down below. What do you think I experienced? I worked at a gas station in my small North Carolina town, 10 miles from Charlotte. I was a 39-year-old wife and mother of three daughters. I was a stay-at-home mom, and my daughters were all in school when my family needed a little extra income. The area was predominantly safe. My hours were 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Of course, my duties were being a cashier, stocking products, cleaning, doing nightly audits, and reading every Dean Koontz novel I could get my hands on. All of this by myself, I should add. The company didn't see a need to have a second person on this shift because it was very slow, but very hectic on the weekends. I handled this job like a pro. 
I loved seeing my regulars at night and the morning workers getting their coffee and heading to work. I was at this gas station in my little town for about a year. We'll call it a convenience store. I did of course have the -the run-of-the-mill meth heads who liked their sweets. The homeless are looking for free cigs or somewhere to charge their phone. I also had the occasional local police officer that would come in around 12 to 1am for free coffee and complain about their shift. On this night, I read Dean Kuntz's Intensity. I put the bookmark in because I felt like moving around. I went around the counter to the five-hour energy shots and began to organize and stock. I heard the bell above the door open like I had a million times before. I had so many regulars ranging from my pizza delivery guys to men who just kind of came in. I was setting the case of five-hour energy shots down to help this customer when I felt something cold and hard against my right shoulder. It was a blade. My first instinct was that this was a cruel prank from a regular. I turned around to say, hey, when I was met with the gun pointing at my forehead. It was someone I couldn't quite make out. He had a scarf over his face. I immediately put my hands up in shock. I saw three more guys in different colored bandanas with no guns but looking nervous and demanding me to give them all of the money. I walked around the counter with this guy holding his gun to my head and telling me to hurry up and open the register. I said with my hands still in the air, shaking, Yes, yes, of course, here. I opened the register for him, and the four guys descended on this register getting all the cash in it. Suddenly, the gunman looked at me and said, This register too. A second register that had a bare minimum for the first shift. I put in my code and opened that register as well. They cleaned that till too. They saw the safe underneath the first register and again the gunman pointed his gun at my temple and demanded I open the safe. I said in a shaky voice that that safe was on a timer. Suppose you press one button, whether for the $10 bills or a roll of quarters, it won't dispense again for another two whole minutes. These guys were all on this safe pressing buttons while in the meantime I'm praying out loud for God to come spare me because I have a husband and children that need me. I kept frantically saying this prayer and the guys were frustrated that the safe was not giving them what they wanted. I heard one of the guys saying, Shut that girl up! Another said, Just shoot her already. We have what we need now. At that statement, I could feel like I was about to lose my bladder and pee on myself. Even though I was scared out of my mind, I was also mad that this would possibly be where I ended. I held that pee in and watched as they started to steal as many cigarettes, wraps, and black and milds as possible. One of the guys yelled, We've been here too long. Let's go. Three went sprinting to the door while one is in front of me while I was shaking with clenched hands praying. I looked up and his scarf fell. I thought this was it, but he smiled at me and joined his friends. At the same time, a woman came in to buy a soda. They yelled at her and pointed the gun at her to give him their purse. I thought for sure they would get aggressive. Instead, they were worried about being there too long. They ran out of the door and scattered through the parking lot. I looked at the lady, then the glass door and could see her partner's truck outside. I told her to get to the car while I called the police. I locked the door as soon as she was in the car. I picked up the store's landline and dialed 911. I ran to the stockroom and locked that door as well. I told the 911 operator all the details she needed, and after a couple of minutes, she said it was safe to go out front and open the doors for the officers. I did just that. I unlocked the door and immediately removed my name tag and threw it into the trash. I felt like this was finally over, and I was quitting. 
I saw the woman customer confronted by the gunman shaking and rocking back and forth. I put my hand on her shoulder as she gave her statement to the police. I gave the officers my statement and called my manager. She came to the store along with CSI investigators. I watched myself on tape at least three times with the investigators. A CSI guy paused the video while the thieves were surrounding the safe, and their back was turned and asked me, why didn't you run? I said because I was afraid I'd be shot in the back. He apologized immediately, realizing how traumatized I was. After the police left, I continued to converse with my manager as she tried to console me. She called her higher-ups because she had never been through anything like this. I heard upper management tell her, Oh, she'll be alright. No need for me to get out of bed for this. I lost it and told her that she was not a good person. I went home and at this time it was around 4 in the morning. I went upstairs and kissed my children on their foreheads, then went to me in my husband's bedroom. I went into our bathroom to wash my face. I thought not to wake him because he had another hour to sleep before his shift began. I couldn't help but break down after realizing I was alive and splashing water on my face at home. My husband woke up to this and asked in a slight panic, What's wrong? I broke down to my knees on my bathroom floor and explained my nightmare to him. He held me and consoled me. I stayed up until it was time to take the children to school. When I got back home, I called the company's HR. They were very cold towards me. I then called a workers' compensation lawyer. After discussing what happened to me on third shift, by myself and HR being so hard, he took my case. I discovered the four guys that robbed me at gunpoint were all 16 years old. I don't know the punishment they ever received. I do know that I got one year of unemployment checks and settlement of $25,000. I received therapy for the PTSD I have now. It took about a year for me to be comfortable to go to a gas station on my own. It's been four years now, and I'm doing okay. I now have two knives and a taser on me at all times. I started working part-time at a local gas station convenience store over the summer of 2016 to earn some extra money while attending college. When I was hired, I was notified that female employees were never scheduled to work overnight shifts, which I was relieved to hear. I wasn't worried about my safety, but I was concerned about getting enough sleep before classes. It wasn't long before I found myself dreading the days I had to come to work, though, as the job became much more complicated than anticipated. We were always short-staffed, which forced us to constantly multitask between running cash registers preparing food, keeping eyes on pumps, cleaning, stocking, etc. To make matters worse, the two women who managed the place were awful, and I frequently found myself biting my tongue and talking myself out of quitting. I was already on edge when they cut our 15-minute breakdown to 10 minutes, as I never seemed to have enough time to use the restroom and smoke a cigarette fast enough. But it wasn't until several annoying encounters with a regular... I'll call him James, that I finally started to break. James was younger than me, maybe late teens or early twenties, and he thought he owned the place. Perhaps being the grandson of one of the managers gave him a sense of entitlement to fuck with the people there. When I met James, he approached the counter to purchase some chewing tobacco. As I was ringing him up, I asked to see his ID, and he told me who he was related to but I politely asked again to see his ID 
because I was new. Another employee overheard our conversation and assured me that he was old enough, so I went ahead and rang him up. Staring at me intently the whole time, he looked down at my name tag and said, Mindy, that's a pretty name. I thanked him for the compliment and gave him his dip, but he continued talking to me and asking several personal questions. He wanted to know where I lived, what my last name was, whether or not I had a boyfriend, etc. Meanwhile, a long line had formed behind him, and not trying to be rude, I said something like, Sorry, there's a line behind you, and I casually motioned for the next customer to move up. But James didn't leave. He simply stepped to the side and continued talking to me, and watching me as I rang each customer up. It was immediately uncomfortable and unsettling for me. Still, I did my best to pretend I wasn't bothered, even when his persistence escalated and another co-worker told him to leave me alone. James soon began to make more appearances after that, the second time being with his girlfriend and another male friend by his side. Yes, he had a girlfriend, and I was very confused when he started flirting with me again, this time right in front of her. But oddly enough, she didn't say a word. So, I brushed it off and played along, assuming he was just the goof that my coworker said he was. But when he sat in a booth with his sidekicks at the back of the store, I could feel his eyes burning a hole right through me. Over time, I grew more suspicious of James, as I would witness him do and say countless things to hurt others. I knew that he was annoying, and I had learned to brush it off as an all-in-good-fun type of humor like everyone else did. But when I caught him making fun of another co-worker to her face, all I could feel was anger towards him. I removed her from the situation by taking her place at the register, as I could tell she was very hurt and embarrassed by his comments. And by doing so, it was apparent to James that I disapproved. He would continue to harass this poor girl cruelly, and even some of the customers who came in. But trying to make him stop was like scolding a child. I didn't lash out at him, though. I just began to ignore him. James then started playing these head games with me while I was working. He would take soda and candy, walk outside without paying for it, and then come back in the store and said that I forgot to ring it up, loud enough for everyone to hear. One night, he even filled up his gas tank and took off without paying for it, before returning to say he forgot to pay. He knew he'd always get away with it because Granny was the manager. By this point, it wouldn't have surprised me if he was stealing gas and food from the store. There was something very dark and strange lurking behind his goofball facade and I avoided him like the plague, though it was nearly impossible to do so at times. Then, one day, while I was working alone with another co-worker, we were very busy with tasks as usual, when, lo and behold, James walked in by himself. I muttered, pain in the ass, and I walked straight back into the freezer to finish what I was working on earlier, and then he followed me inside the freezer. I didn't know he was there until he walked right up behind me and asked why I didn't greet him anymore. Startled, I jumped and quickly turned around, grabbing my chest and asking him what he was doing back there. He laughed as I told him I was busy and reminded him that only employees could be in this area. 
He ignored everything I said and instead proceeded to ask me personal questions, just like he did the first day I met him. You never told me where you live, he said. I'm curious about you. I just want to know. Tell me where you live. He was moving closer and closer towards me, literally backing me into the corner of the freezer. Are you afraid of me, Mindy? He asked. I tried to push past him, telling him to move, but he kept stepping in front of me to block my way out. Not until you answer me, he said. I started calling out for my co-worker, who showed up and gave him hell for being in the freezer. I was finally able to push past James, and I made my way to the front counter, where I looked at the clock and saw that it was time for me to go home. I gathered my things and punched out as quickly as possible, but James followed me out to the parking lot. I swiftly got into my car, but James had managed to grab the top of my door before I could shut it. Come on, just let me see your ID, he persisted. I repeatedly told him no before I found myself practically begging for him to let go of my door so I could go home. Then he grinned at me and said, Don't make me follow you, Mindy. Chills ran down my spine. Knowing how bold of a person he was and because he just cornered me in the freezer only minutes ago, I expected him to follow through. I became angry threatened by visions of what my drive home might soon look like. I looked at him dead on before shouting, Let go of my fucking door and stay the fuck away from me. I then grabbed the door handle and ripped the door shut as hard as possible. He tried yanking on the door handle from the outside to open it, but luckily I locked the doors in time. He then knocked on my window, asking to see my ID, but I started my car and backed away from him. I turned the wheels and hightailed it out of there while he just stood and watched me speed off. I was so glad to get away from him finally, but I was paranoid the whole way home, thinking he could catch up to me on the road, even though I never saw his vehicle behind me. I would quit the job after this, and I didn't care that my hiring manager was pissed about it. I had enough of everything, and dealing with James was the last straw. I didn't bother explaining anything to my manager, because it was apparent that James was probably never held accountable for anything he ever did wrong in his life, and he likely never would be. After that, I never saw him again, and I hope I never do either. James was a jerk, a clown, a joker, but he was also borderline psychotic. This happened about seven years ago, when I was 17 years old. My parents went out of town for a weekend and left me at home. This was a rather common occurrence, and my parents trusted me. I would usually spend these weekends away staying with friends or family as my parents' house is a bit creepy to be alone in, even during the day. We live in a small, rural town where everyone knows each other, and generally, it's quiet and safe. Saturday, I was supposed to stay with a friend, but her parents decided not to let me stay at the last minute. It wasn't a big deal and I had to leave. I was somewhat prepared to go home because her parents got weird about company sometimes. 
I left her house, which was about a 15-minute walk from my house, around 9.30 or 9.45. While I was going home, I got a weird feeling that I could not explain. I just knew that I did not want to stay at my parents alone. I called my brother and asked if I could stay with him. At the time, he was living with a woman who had a small child. He told me it would be quieter and more accessible to stay with me since his dog would bark if I tried to come into the house. He said he would be at our parents' house in 20 minutes. Side note that will be relevant later. My brother is a relatively scary-looking guy. He is about 6'3", 200 pounds, muscular, and covered in tattoos. After hanging up, I decided to stop at a gas station and grab a snack before going home so that my brother would be there when I got there. I pulled into a gas station. There were only a few cars in the lot, which is typical because this is a small town in the rural south where everything stops working at about 8pm. I parked and walked up to the door. A man was standing outside the door smoking. He opened the door for me without saying anything. This is customary southern hospitality especially since I'm a female. I smiled and thanked him. Inside, another man was standing by the door. I noticed him staring at me as soon as I came in. He gave me that gross up and down look and said something along the lines like, Hey sexy, what are you doing here alone? Very creepily. I just ignored him and walked towards the back of the store. He yelled at me and called me some sort of words, but I couldn't hear it. I still missed him. I figured he was drunk or high or just some sort of asshole. Most people around here talk a big game but rarely back it up. I wasn't too scared, just annoyed. I got my snacks and paid at the counter. When I walked back up to the door, both men were gone. I was happy to not have to deal with any more catcalling. I walked across the lot towards my car, probably a hundred feet away from the door. As I was walking, I looked down at my phone to see if enough time had passed for my brother to be at my parents. When I looked up, the guy who had hit on me was standing at the pump staring. I looked at him for a second and continued walking. Hey, you're supposed to answer a man when he speaks to you, he said. I remember saying something snarky back to him and getting in my car. He looked pissed at my sarcasm. I locked my doors and as soon as I was in my car, started it and thought nothing of it. All I wanted to do was put my snacks aside, get home, eat them, and hang out with my brother. I put my car in gear and realized the man had disappeared. Looking around before pulling out of the parking lot, I realized both men were sitting in a car facing mine across the lot. They were both staring at me and talking, occasionally even pointing toward me. I just stared at them, defiant and pissed. I didn't want them to think they scared me at all. While we were there sitting having our staring contest, the man who had opened the door for me smiled and gave me the finger across the throat gesture, as in, you're dead. I rolled my eyes and pulled out of the gas station, annoyed. To my dismay, they pulled out behind me. I hadn't been scared up until this point. As I said, most people here are all talk with no follow through. Instead of going home, I took a few back roads that connected back into a circle to see if they were indeed following me, which they were. When they realized I was testing them, they drove up close to me and started lying on the horn. I couldn't see the headlights. They were too close, so I called my brother and told him what was going on. He told me to come home and he would handle it. I started driving home and the two guys were still on my ass, blowing the horn the entire time. 
Even with my detours, I was only about three to four minutes away from my parents' house. I slowed down to pull into the driveway and was immediately relieved. At the end of the driveway was my brother, standing shirtless with his shoulders back, hands crossed in front of his stomach, holding a pistol, his intimidating-looking pit bull sitting by his side. The two guys started to pull in behind me until they saw my brother, and then they hightailed it. I have no idea what they would have done if I had stopped somewhere alone or kept driving. I always think fondly of that image of him standing there like a badass, ready to protect me. I'm thankful he was there. So, I am a 25-year-old female, and this story is about my experience with the paranormal and finding out that I am hypersensitive. I don't have many now, but I plan on getting into ghost hunting, so if I have more experiences, I will definitely send them into the swamp. The first part of this story will explain what caused me to become so fascinated with the paranormal and how I feel I became hypersensitive in the first place, which was told to me by my mom. When my mom was still pregnant with me, she for the most part lived in this place for expectant mothers who had either no place to go or could not live at home. While she was there, she said that one night, while she was trying to go to sleep, she felt as if demons surrounded her. Feeling rightfully afraid, she began praying, at which the demons left. Now, she is very skeptical of the paranormal. She told me that she has to see it to believe it, so I think she was telling me the truth. My theory is that what caused me to become hypersensitive was that. This next part is the most intense and scary paranormal experience that I've ever had. The first one happened one night when a friend of my younger brother's, who is also my friend as well, and I were walking to get a drink from the gas station in the middle of the night. I need to first explain where the house I was living at was situated. Right across the street from where I lived was a middle school. I will not say the name. So as we were walking to the gas station, on the sidewalk in front of the middle school, we approached the end where we had to cross the street. My friend and I both heard in our minds what sounded like an older woman mixed with a witch cackling. Now I might have written this off as my imagination, but when I turned towards my friend to see if he had heard it as well, he looked at me with the exact same look that I had and practically screamed, Did you hear that too? The next part of this story happened in the same circumstances as the first, a middle-of-the-night drink and cigarette run to the gas station with the same friend. But this happened on our way back from the gas station. As we were leaving and heading back to the house, I saw a big bright flash of light by some bushes. I would later come to realize that this was the spirit crossing over into our reality. After which, as we walked along to the house, my friend kept seeing a dog rounding each corner we crossed, but I never saw it. I believed him though, because as he would try to point it out to me, my fight or flight response would be going nuts and I would want to run back to my house like hell. But since my friend was with me, I would have felt like a world-class loser for leaving them behind. I instead kept walking with him. I ultimately resorted to holding my house key clenched between my fingers as a weapon if I had to. Thankfully, I didn't need to, and we got back to my house safely. So, that's my story. Sorry if this wasn't as crazy or scary as the others. If you do read this, though, thank you so much, Swamp Dweller. 